You're listening to Under the Radar Podcast, where artists share their childhood memories, musical inspirations, and the milestones that help shape them and their music. I'm your host, Celine Teoblocki. So I had just quit working at the abortion clinic here, because right when the pandemic hit, I went straight from touring to working full-time as a patient advocate, and it, it was it was insane. I mean... The governor is trying to shut us down. The attorney general is trying to shut us down, all while we're like managing a crisis within a crisis within a crisis. So I was very close to burnout. The only thing that I could do when I would get home, I would blast I Feel Love on repeat. It was like the only thing that I could listen to that would stimulate some kind of positive brain activity. And I think it just became part of my DNA at that point. So... The whole album became about bliss. My name is AJ Haynes of the band Serotones. The album, entitled Love and Algorithms, will be out April 29th on New West Records. From the Deep South, Serotones first came to prominence with the West Coast punk sound of their 2016 debut, Get Gone. In the course of three records, frontwoman AJ Haynes has helped steer the sound from punk and garage rock to southern blues and the now disco and 60s-inflected soul of their latest album, Love and Algorithms. More than just her stunning powerhouse vocals that were honed in singing at the Brownsville Baptist Church, AJ has been increasingly keen to speak her mind about the difficult issues she saw her community face in her work as an abortion advocate. She wrote Love and Algorithms as a protest record, informed by the black feminism of authors such as Tony Kate Bambara, queer activist Audre Lorde and the Afrofuturist writings of Octavia Butler's original science fiction series, Xenogenesis. Love and Algorithms is a protest record. It centers blackness, yet preaches love and enlightenment through songs that AJ hopes uplifts anyone who needs it. Before we delve into the darker backdrop that gave birth to the radical joy of Love and Algorithms, AJ takes us back to a childhood, growing up part of a warm, matriarchal family in the Deep South. Mm-hmm. 
So you grew up in Louisiana. I think end of 2018, 2019, we went on a road trip with my two kids and my husband on the Blues Highway. Oh, fun! So I got to see a little bit of that side of America, which I'd never seen before. You've described Shreveport as like there's a weirdness about it. What does it mean for you as someone who grew up there? So it's called Shreveport, uh, named by Captain Henry Miller Shreve, and it was a port city. So I was born in Yokosuka, Japan, and then we Whoa. moved from Yokosuka, Japan to Columbia, Louisiana, where my dad's side of the family, you know, the matriarchy is based. Then from Columbia, moved to Shreveport. So I moved to Shreveport in my like adolescence. I went to high school here. So my childhood was very much spent like. You know, in Yokosuka, all I remember was like being at the beach, and we left when I was fairly young. So we were kind of transported to rural Louisiana. So I had lots of space and like greenery, and we grew a lot of food. And I had such a robust community. Um, had aunts, uncles, cousins. You know, so I just I grew up in a really tight and extensive family unit. And so that really informed a lot of where I am now. Mm. And when I moved to Shreveport, I was just like this, still am, you know, I'm still very much so that weird kid that mm-hmm. is a learned extrovert, you know. Before you moved to mm-hmm. Shreveport, got that right? Totally. <laughs> so tell me what a, a perfect day would have been like for you as a kid. Yeah, thinking of waking up at my grandmother's house. Sundays that we got to stay home are really special. So being woken up by like the smell of breakfast would be like grits, some kind of country sausage, and some pear preserves. My great-grandmother used to make the best pear preserves from this awesome tree in her backyard. Um, So we'd have like that with some toast and then hearing like the gospel on the radio and also the scent of cleaning supplies like pine salt because Sundays were like we turn on the radio and listen to the gospel music and clean and there's like sunshine but then there's also opening the windows and it's there's a sense of like pine trees and dirt because we grew up in the country from there going to visit my great-grandmother and picking pears so like smelling the pear trees this would be like an autumn kind of thing what's a happy memory for you from your childhood that is maybe connected to music so my mother was also a singer so my mother was from the philippines and she left the philippines because she was first married to this japanese dude so she went to japan with him and they like toured a lot my father just told me about some Mm. of this and so I found one of her bossa nova books. She used to sing a lot of bossa nova music. And it's interesting because I'm always drawn to bossa nova music and that feeling of the saudade, the Mm. longingness that is still sweet and painful, something you've never had before. We don't really have a translation for it. Mm So I don't, I can't really tie it to a specific moment, but like I know that that music is kind of part of my like oral DNA, you know, before I even was born. And mm-hmm. and then my mother passed away when I was very young. She passed away when I was 10. So there's, you know, kind of a chunk of time missing and, and 
And that, and a lot of that weighs like identity where I'm like constantly putting pieces together and, and having these small moments of discovery. Um, and every time I listen to, you know, Joao Gilberto or like mm. anyone from that era, I'm just like, wow. It just like resonates through my whole body, you know. Have you got like her singing on anything or recordings or? Yeah, I don't. I don't have any. Um, mm. I can like remember her singing. And I sound a lot like her. I sound very much so like my mother. Sometimes I'll say something and I'll be like, what? <laughs> Where'd that come from? You know, what an honor to like grow old. I have my grandmother resonating in my body. I have my great grandmother, my mother. It's just so cool. Mm. You know, it's amazing. You have that connection. Yeah. I lost my mom young as well, mm. but I, I, I don't feel like I have that same connection mm. it's nice that you had that opportunity to have those very warm memories of her granted you still have huge gaps mm -hmm. so what is a memory that makes you sad that you know maybe you don't even like to think about um hmm. I mean her passing I mean it's really you know I went to school and then had to be picked up from school because she was gone she died in a head-on collision like a really crazy freak accident mm. um so that it's grief is crazy right like how you yeah how your body protects you you know so like going through that process of like a really, really catastrophic shift. And sometimes my memory comes back to me in like small ways through like food usually. Mm -hmm. Oh my goodness, like adobo and lumpia. It's usually food. You know? <laughs> I was just in Thailand getting my yoga certification there. And mm -hmm. like there are a lot of similar flavor profiles between Thai and Filipino food. It was bringing back all these memories, like the tapioca balls, the rice balls and coconut. It's like that feeling, perhaps it's, yeah, that's the saudad, the, like, I've had this before, but I can't place it, you know, and it makes me feel warm and held, but it's also like a deep longing, you know, and you just, mm. it's very present, I think is what I love about that concept is, is like, there's a stillness there. And yeah, in that stillness, you see the past and the future at the same time. Mm, it's a bit of time traveling. It really is. You've spoken about your mother and grandmother and this kind of lineage of like strong women. Mm -hmm. Given what you do for work now, I wonder if this has come from like a family that's like kind of just well-versed in social justice issues or when you first kind of became aware that we have to fight for so many like so-called basic yeah. rights and also thinking of you know my mother is filipina like being someone who had to migrate to find a life you know like i mean we're just out here fighting for ourselves you know that i think that's the that's the crazy thing is that like black and brown folks are just trying to save ourselves and everyone else benefits from it yeah I think I get labeled as a radical or X, Y, Z, but I think about what I really want and what I value and they're pretty basic. Like I just want clean food and air and water. I would be completely content to just have some goats and land and 
just be straight chilling. You know, like for me, that's the ultimate goal is like land acquisition, building wealth, and creating a space where people don't have to validate their humanity. You get to exist. You don't have to prove anything. I got glimpses of that in my childhood. You know, I think of my great grandmother buying property. Mm-hmm. We ate off the land and then my my mother and how she prioritized like calm spaces. And so they showed me what I'm fighting for. I don't even know if it's fighting. Mm. I think of even my work in abortion care as creative work. I found myself in the position mm. of being elected president of the New Orleans Abortion Fund board of directors. And I was like, y'all really want me to be the president? Because I'm an artist, you know? Like, <laughs> And in fact, I think because of being an artist, because I'm, because I'm so nourished from my art, from my community, mm. creative solutions come to me really easily. And uncomplicated solutions come to me very easily because I'm not steeped in the system. Yeah, the system. And I mean, essentially, the genesis of the nonprofit work is not really wholly altruistic. Mm. And so how do we take this tool? It wasn't created with us in mind, but look what we've done. Like, I'm able to fund abortions. Mm. We're able to take someone's tax write-off and help build generational wealth. Mm -hmm. Cool, I'll take it. But not working directly in nonprofit, I'm not subject to a lot of the respectability politics and a lot of the barriers that mm. especially folks of color working mm. in nonprofit spaces are constantly dealing mm. with. I understand you sang in the church. Like I grew up Catholic in Singapore and um, I went to a Catholic school. Yeah, wow. And so there's this idea of abortion being this sin where you kill a fetus, you kill a life, and it's the biggest sin, right? Mm. But abortion really means so much more. I mean, ultimately, I'm here for liberation, and part of liberation is reproductive justice, right? And reproductive justice is the human right to create families in safe and sustainable environments. It was a, it was a phrase coined by Sister Song, mm-hmm. you know, Black feminist-led organization and network. And so I think the conversation about abortion is often talked about in terms mm-hmm. of binaries, and it's also talked about in terms that are stripped of the deeply spiritual process that it is, regardless of someone's religious beliefs. I think that it's talked about in pro or anti, and I don't know, I think that ultimately I found myself in this position and working in abortion care, really just out of necessity, because I was like a poor college student that needed another job. Mm. And the abortion clinic was right across the street from my campus, and Mm. I didn't have a car. I mean, like out of straight up necessity. And I have the tools to be able to hold space for people during a time Mm. of crisis. And ultimately, I just trust that moment whenever someone's like, yes or no. Or like, yes, but not Mm -hmm. now, you know, or nothing in my life makes sense. There's no way that this makes sense on paper, but I really know in my heart and my soul and my spirit that I want to bring this life into the world, you know, and Mm -hmm. that too. Because when you look at all this crazy shit on paper, you're like, no one should bring a wife into this world. Mm. But it's more than just on paper. You just have to trust that moment because I get frustrated whenever people 
I hate the word pro-choice. Mm. Like, I, like it's, <laughs> it's so we're still dealing in that binary, right? It's like pro or you're anti-choice. And it's like, uh, I don't think it's that easy. I think I'm here for justice and I think I'm here for, for safety and for dignity. Mm-hmm. Just showing up for your community. So I think abortion is a very safe and simple process. If you look at just statistically how safe abortion is, and it is also a deeply spiritual decision, Mm. and it is simply a tool for liberation. Talking about it in all of those terms is how we get closer to what people's actual experiences are. Mm. Also, holding space for the grief that some people do have after abortions, right? Like Mm -hmm. a lot of these white feminist-led spaces and repro health it's like we don't talk about our feelings. We don't talk about how we felt after our abortions because that's weaponized. It's like yeah. everything is weaponized against us. You know, like so let's just talk about how we actually feel and hold space for each other and like be nice and have space for complicated grief. After years of AJ and the band's three other founding members playing in various local punk bands, they came together to form Sarah Tones in 2013. Two years later, they entered NPR's first Tiny Desk contest. Though the band didn't win, they did get signed to the Fat Possum label and released their energetic debut the following year. I started writing songs and then just needed a band and I had happened to be in like the DIY punk scene here in Shreveport. I say scene, scene's like a stretch, it was community, because scene sounds like there's a lot of stuff going on, you know, it was really just us and... How old were you then? Around 17 is when I met some of the guys in the band, Okay, but I was pretty determined. I, I remember one of my little house parties that I had in my tiny apartment, I had this map that I had in the kitchen. And we were like sitting down and I was like, you see that map? We're going to go to those places. Mark my words. And they did. Just before the release of Get Gone, they were invited by NPR's Bob Boylan to do one of his much-loved Tiny Desk concerts. More festival shows, national and international tours would soon follow. Take a ticket, won't you take a ride, baby? You can meet me on the interesting that you started out as a punk Mm -hmm. singer first because it was like whoa when was the last time we saw a black female punk singer I mean I just love the west coast psych that was happening at that time like from San Francisco and LA Mm -hmm. you know I was super heavy into the OCs Ty Seagal and x-ray specs nice and and it was also about a reclamation of space too because I was like you know, when we first started, it was very intentional to say, like, we're a rock and roll band because of how rock and roll had been historically so commodified and whitewashed, you know? And so for me, it was a reclamation of space. 
In 2019, they moved to New West Records and away from the punk rock sound that had defined the first album. Their second album was titled Power, and it saw the band dig into their southern roots. They might have moved away from the fury of punk, but AJ's work as an abortion advocate meant her lyrics were as fiery as ever. But power wasn't monotone. AJ still sang about women's issues in all sorts of ways. Here, it's couched in a Phil Spector-like Motown hit. By the time it came to writing their third album, AJ had worked in abortion care for almost a decade. She was well-versed in the precarious state that abortion rights had been in for a long time, especially to the most vulnerable people in a state like Louisiana. With the real-world consequences of a Trump White House, the ambitions she once shared with her friends in her kitchen seemed to now pale in comparison. At the time, that was my like my North Star or my my goal was like, I want to travel the world with my friends. And we did it. And then and then what? You know, and I think that's where I arrived with this album was, OK, I did it. I did. I traveled the world with my friends. But they didn't all stay mm-hmm. my friends, actually, because we have shifting priorities, you know. And what does it mean for this to actually look like if it were sustainable? And what would this look like if I am healthy? And if I prioritize my well-being, if I prioritize just speaking freely, you know, because I'm not Mm. an unintelligent person. Like I can talk (laughs) about hard things, you know. (laughs) You're very articulate. (laughs) Yeah. And like furthermore, people are okay with listening to hard things. Like people, you know, there's such all this anxiety and fear around talking about difficult subjects you know, and so much of anxiety and fear just deals with the unknown. Mm. And when I just let go of that, well, what might people think? Like, I don't know. I don't know what they might think. I know what my truth is. You also said, you know, with the first album, you wanted to look into the crowd and see more people who looked like you. And was that not happening as fast as you would have liked it to? Yeah. I mean, you know, it's wild. So 
Mm. I'm seeing a lot of major brands starting to recognize what do they say, quote unquote, alternative black music, which is like, it's all black music. We made it all jazz, blues, you know, house, electronic music, like eh, been out here. It's just not been within a wide imagination, you know? So it's like, oh, this is crazy. Like mm. there's the whole internet and we have like books about it now. Like chill out. <laughs> <laughs> I know, right? I think like when I went on the Blues Highway, even in late 2018, yeah. I feel like when I said to people that like all pop music, all American music, which is like the rest of the world listens to yeah. it, all of that has its roots mm -hmm. in black music, you know, and then slaves coming from Africa. So you can trace yeah. that now, you know, and I remember people just like, what the fuck are you talking about? Do you know that's black music? And then there's like rock and roll. And they were like, no, I think, <laughs> I think you need to do a bit of history. You know, and see where this music actually started Absolutely. from and where it overlapped with people coming from Ireland and people coming from Scotland and then becoming this other thing. It's like, pay attention. You can't, you can't get away with saying that shit anymore because like you yeah. say, there's books about it. Yes, they can get away with saying shit like that because of how emboldened certain folks are. I mean, we no longer live in a democracy. We live in an anocracy in the U.S., mm. In order for the U.S. to really become the dream, to become what it has put down in the Constitution it wants to be, it's going to have to reckon with whiteness, right? And whiteness as a construct and whiteness as something that was created, right, to enslave people, to create chattel slavery. And mm -hmm. in recognizing that some of the most beautiful art forms in the world have roots in the transatlantic slave trade in the diaspora. And they have to reckon with themselves, right? And so asking someone to read a book is one thing, but asking someone to reckon with themselves yeah. and the way that they have benefited from harm, harming people, that's a different thing, right? Mm -hmm. I love human beings and I know that we're capable of way better. And I see it in my friends and family. You know, I know what's possible. I know what real allyship looks like. Yeah. So people can't tell me Harriet Tubman had John Brown. That's all I'm saying. Like, like it exists. Like the yeah. lineage also of, of white folks reckoning with their whiteness and doing something about it. Like it's possible. <laughs> totally not that wild of a concept. The first single that Serotones released from their album Love and Algorithms was Good Day. The music video starts with a black man staring at the ceiling in despair as bad news blares out of a TV. It was a familiar feeling for many during the pandemic, especially at the height of the Black Lives Matter movement and the immediate aftermath of George Floyd's murder. For a while there, every day felt like one worse than the day before. As a result, AJ wanted to offer radical joy in the form of a song. Good Day's bright, steel drum-like melody denotes a lightness coupled with a throwback 60s Motown sound. In the bridge, she uses the uplifting hymnals of the Baptist Church, History has shown how the black church in the midst of struggle has often offered solace for its congregation. And with Good Day, AJ wanted to offer it to every black man, woman, anyone who needed it. 
felt that it was important that the album art encompassed her desire for radical joy. The image looks like a figure descending on a dance floor with beams of disco lights emanating from it. Or is it some kind of interplanetary being? I actually reached out to David Alabo, who's based in Ghana. Randomly met him on Instagram. I just was following like a bunch of Afrofuturist artists. And I was like, I'm obsessed with this guy's work. Mm -hmm. And I wonder if he'll do our album work. And he did. I wanted to depict how blackness is both sky and stars and Mm -hmm. the dark matter. And so what does it look like if we center a black femme body? I really wanted the the black figure to be a little ambiguous. You know, Joel, who works on radio for the album, like cut out a pair of laser earrings for me of Mm. of the figure. And he described the figure as him. And I was like, cool. You know, like that's what he saw, which I think is fascinating that he saw himself, right, <laughs> uh, in that figure. Because in me, I see like a black femme, powerful figure, and he saw a male, you know, in, in this mm-hmm. absent space. That was a really cool moment for me. I was like, mm-hmm. the art's doing what I, I just want people to see themselves in it. And I'm also 100 fucking percent centering blackness, like... <laughs> And so what happens whenever we center blackness is that there can be a moment of reflection where people can see themselves in that. Yeah. Wow. Art is cool. Afrofuturism, it's like I noticed that the song Pleasure is inspired by the writings of Octavia Butler. But what does Afrofuturism mean for you? Um, and when did you first sort of connect to like Afrofuturist ideas? Was it in literature or songs? Or You know, the funniest thing is that I was first introduced to Afrofuturist writings by one of my dear friends, Dr. Jeannie Hamming. 
um, she's a professor at Centenary College, mm-hmm. the liberal arts school I went to. And she is like blonde hair, blue eyed from Claire, mm-hmm. Michigan. She was my entry to Afrofuturist literature. So what I'm saying, like allyship, I'm like, I know, I know what it really looks like. So people are like, mm, it's possible. So she introduced me to Octavia Butler. Actually, she introduced me to Audre Lorde. A lot of people don't think of Audre Lorde as, as an Afrofuturist, but I do. Mm-hmm. Because I think she made me possible. And that poem, Cole, like, I is black because I come from the earth's inside. And the last lines are, you know, take my word for jewel in your open light. Wow, that blew my mind. I mean, seeing Donna Summer to me was like Afrofuturism, you know, like, Mm. I don't think it was intentional, but I think like she was very Afrofuturist. That idea of joy as well, you know, I feel love, I feel love. It's like you think about when she she was singing those songs, you know, in like the 70s. That was only like years from mm. the civil rights movement and all everything else that was still going on. And I only think about it now right? with the sort of learning that, you know, I've had to do during the last two years, like to understand those songs and see them in a different light now. Like what it means to say, I feel love, I feel love mm. as a black body in that space. Yeah, that's the beauty of Afrofuturism, right? Is that it's like, it's past, it's future, it's present. It's like all of these things at once. And Donna Summer was fascinating because, I mean, her voice, like classically trained, you know, could sing, could sing anything. She didn't have a quote unquote black voice, you know, the way that in the same way that people think when Roberta Flack came out, she doesn't sound like a black woman. It's like, well, we sound like whatever the fuck we want to, actually. <laughs> Pause. You know, like, I love that blackness is, like, expansive. Mm. Let's hone in a little bit on the song Pleasure. Like, how did you write that song? How did you see it fitting into this album? This was one of the songs that I co-wrote with the guys in the band. There's only one song that Jesse and Travis were also like active writers in the the genesis of. Um, The rest of them either wrote by Mm -hmm. myself or with some other songwriters, which I love co-writing. It's just, it keeps me honest, you know? Mm. And so we just gotten together after being super safe during the pandemic. Like we did not get together in person unless it was outside and we had a lot of space. And when we got together in our rehearsal space, Jesse had his vibraphone. And so conceptually, I was just like, what if we can reduce the song to two or no more than three chords? And I came up with the chord arrangement and Jesse just played it on his vibraphone. And I just kind of started spouting off the images that I saw. And I was like, I really love this. It's like we're in a space desert that's somehow like in Mali, you know, this kind of East African sensibility. Wow. I was listening to a lot of Tanara went at the time too. Mm. And just like, how do we get in that space? So we just had the chord structure and then the guys arranged this crazy guitars and we got the um, the synthesizers in and they sent me the track and I just kind of picked and chose some stuff like took this out, added that in and then created the lyrics. I was reading Octavia Butler at the time. Nice. Yeah. And just this concept of the Owen Kali, the aliens, they're not benevolent, but they love humans. You're not enslaved but you also don't always get to make a choice. And they don't have you in shackles, Mm. but you are controlled through pleasure receptors. I was just like, what is this craziness? 
this is like, this is what I'm interested in is like this art of seduction because they're seductive creatures, the uloi. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I was just thinking of them and I was like, what if, you know, an uloi were singing this song? So it, it came together in this really like kind of prismatic way. Mm. At the time I was also working or I had just quit working at the abortion clinic here because right when the pandemic mm -hmm. hit, I just, I went straight from touring to working full time as a patient advocate. And it, it was, mm -hmm. it was insane. I mean, the governor is trying to shut us down. The attorney general is trying to shut us down all while we're like managing a crisis within a crisis within a crisis. So I was very close to burnout because the only thing mm -hmm. that I could do when I would get home, bless it, my partner would be home sometimes because he would come back and forth from Mississippi and mm -hmm. he would just look at me and he was like, what is going on? And I would take a shower and after I took a shower, I would either like garden or actually I would just garden. That's all I could do. And I would blast I Feel Love on repeat. <laughs> I would listen, bless my neighbors. I would listen to I Feel Love like at least three times in a row when I got home. It was like the only thing that I could listen to that would like stimulate some kind of like positive brain activity. Mm. Um, and I think it just became part of my DNA at that point. So I was just writing from that, that feeling of that, that bliss, you know. And so that seeped into the whole album. The whole album became about bliss, you know. Even Dark Matter is, in order for me to really understand bliss, I had to go to like the opposite, you know. And Dark Matter is a reflection of that, of this just utter, like, just utter despair. Mm -hmm. You know, I was, that was a tough song um, to record because I really had to sit with grief of like future grief mm. of like, what if I do want to become a mother? And actually I would really love mm. that. It's something that I would look forward to. And I'm bringing a brown baby into this crazy shit. Like really sitting with that future grief. And yes, 100% like unique to my experience. But I think that all parents go through that, this like, this future grief of what are y'all going to have to deal with? And am I going to set you up to make sure that you're going to be okay? Nosebleed Woke up in a black dream Flying at warp speed in my mind, oh my, who's she? Naked in the sweet grass, got the dust in my sheets. Who am I? Who are we living for? Who are we living for? Seems to know why we're lost inside us. 
I like how some of these songs, even Dark Matter, you know, there's like a sensuality to your music, like that poem that you recite. If the body is blameless, then embrace me like a ribbon around a bomb, back arched, supine twilight stretching electric deliverance, interdependent, unalienable rights, unchained reaction, arrhythmic capital, syncopated mysteries, shaping obsidian spark, blue stretch marks to telephone game. What did eardrum beat to decolleté? Back fat folds, underbelly, labia, tender inner thigh, behind the knees to pinky toe crease. Ain't we self-evident? We're talking about women and there's a sensuality there and they're not just sex objects. In Dark Matter, like who's she naked in the grass? With these songs, you know, like what is your intention in them? What are you trying to get across with these songs to people? I mean, liberation. You know, I think of the body as a way to achieve liberation. Mm. I think of Prince's Pussy Mm, Control, mm. you know, it's like... I think that's what he's talking about in that song is just like, this is the way you can get the liberation through this portal. It's amazing. You can make a human. You could not. You can have control, you know. Tony Cade Bambara said that you got to make the revolution irresistible. Mm-hmm. One of my frustrations with the Black Power movement is how women were just shoved to the side, even though we were who made the whole thing run internalized colonization is real. It's like, how are you going to fear the black pussy? Like, come on, calm down. (laughs) We are capable of amazing things and we can be sensual. Like we can lead a revolution and have like our waist beads and like our cleavage and our whatever and our sensuality and our fleshiness, you know? It's really important for me also to have, yeah, like fleshy bodies. Like I want to see bellies. Like I want to see like... (laughs) You know, there's a very Eurocentric understanding of beauty that gets pushed, but there's like this fear of the roles and yeah, fear of like the thick thighs. And I'm like, that's that's what the women that raised me look like that. We're our sensual creatures, actually. And we we don't get to be stripped of we're not stripped of our sexuality and our sensuality. Mm. In fact, there is power there, you know? Like that there's enticement there. There's invitation on our own terms. And like, wow, how great would the world be if we had more of that? Also, like, you know, get on the noom and lose some weight. They're always talking about, oh, yeah, but they use psychology to help you lose weight. And I'm like, but women find it really, really like, you know, triggered. Mm. I think they can use psychology for so much good. Why do they have to use it to tell women to like lose weight? Everyone suffers from that because even people with thin bodies, people think that fat phobia is not tied to race, but it absolutely is, you know, like everything comes down to these structures that were set in place by a handful of folks that had a lot of power at a certain history and time, you know, now we're reckoning with it. And I feel so privileged in that the bodies that I was raised by I know is beautiful and I know is able and I know is capable and I know is healthy actually.
That is actually one of my favorite songs yeah. in the album. Um, you know, just listening to it, I was like, what is this? I, I want to just keep listening yeah. to this forever. Um, and it's got that funky 60s rhythm, but also then you work that killing in the name mm. of the Rage Against the Machine thing. Why did you do that? Because like for me, I was so floored. I was like, that's familiar. What is it? It makes perfect sense, right? Because of the history of that song, because it was about police brutality and in the aftermath of Rodney King. When you did that, what was your process behind it? Were you trying to get us to connect the dots? Well, first of all, thanks to Zach De La Roca and the dudes at Rage for letting me use that. (laughs) (laughs) Because in my head, I was like, oh, that's that's lineage. I'm like, oh, I know what he's saying there. Oh, he's not going to be too mad about like a queer abortion activist from the Deep South. Then my manager's like, we actually have to like get this cleared. And the lawyer's like, yeah, we got to like talk to people. And they were so cool about it. Yeah, the intent wasn't necessarily to make the connections because they're already there. Mm. Police brutality is is a racial issue. Um, you know, thinking of like mud to the steeple, I was thinking of Tony Cade Bambara and like mm. uh, and the mud eaters and religious institutions that have been part of harm to black bodies. And then also the black church too, how the black church was central to hopefully will continue to be essential to liberation, you know? Mm-hmm. And and I love Zach De La Roca's voice. It's just got this power, this like, he's got a really activated, activating voice. Um, and I wanted to couple that with like the seductive quality of the swirling chorus voices, mm-hmm. this weird psychedelic thing. I feel like also, I remember coming up in college and just seeing like nothing but straight cis had white boys in frat clubs listening to Rage. And I'm just like, y'all can't have this. Like, <laughs> mm. No, I get you. I get you know that. what I mean? I just feel like their music, I mean, you can't pick your fans and you just got to get it how you live, yeah. you know? Yeah. And like the message will get in there somewhere. And I just remember seeing crowds of like white people chanting this. And I'm like, that's cute. But that's like a lot of white people rocking a Black Lives Matter t-shirt, but then not knowing how to have a conversation with a Black person. So (laughs) yeah, it feels like that to me in the context of like a whole lot of white people, there's a lot more aggression Mm. in the song. There's a whiteness to it that doesn't sit very comfortably with me. Yes, that's 100%. So I, I think for me, it was like this subconscious reclamation of this like, Yes, I know the message here and the message is really key, but this message was not created in spaces that I feel safe Mm -hmm. in. Mm -hmm. And so how do I take this message and bring it back to where a lot more people will feel safe? Sunset to sunrise, wish I could see the world through both of your eyes. 
has its roots in queer black and brown communities, and one of its biggest stars was Sylvester, creator of the classic pride anthem, You Make Me Feel Mighty Real. You would have heard it sampled in any dance club in the 90s. But back in the 70s, Sylvester was a queer black man who was unapologetic about his gender and sexuality. At a time when there were no black icons, Sylvester had hits on the charts and would appear on talk shows. When disco started to fall out of favour in the late 70s, these communities went underground and eventually gave rise to the dance music that came out of Detroit and Chicago, which would later re-emerge in the UK's rave and electronic dance scene of the 90s. When you stumbled into like that disco side of things, mm. do you think that was like a concerted effort for you because that was the thing that was bringing you joy at that moment? Or was it something that disco and that dance music mm. at its roots has to offer? 100%. Yeah, it was like, this is what's making me feel good right now, you know? And also, I think, how lucky am I to have queer elders like that I can talk mm. to? A lot of my queer elders, their friends died from a disease that the state told them that they were doomed to have because of they were born the way that they are. I think maybe subliminally, like part of why this makes me feel good is because it reminds me that like, oh, wow, like we've been here. And I just imagine like how beautiful it must have been listening to like mm. love is the message as a black queer person mm. before the AIDS crisis. Yeah, maybe even like subconsciously the shift to disco is just wanting to grab that period of time again where, I mean, what a crazy time to have been alive, like right before the AIDS crisis, surviving the civil rights era, mm. seeing all these shifts in American history. And then just to be celebrating with the person you love in a place where you feel safe and free and open. Ultimately, that's what I want. And I got a lot of inspiration mm. from Sylvester. I need somebody to love tonight. Mm. I mean, when you think of like the original queen of disco, Sylvester was the original queen of mm. disco. They were just living mm -hmm. a game changer to me. So I just wanted to pay homage to that. And also like, you know, defining my queerness and naming it 
being able to articulate it through this sound. Were you able to do that before? No, I don't think so. No, I just, I just didn't. Either I hadn't had, I didn't have the, the language, or I didn't have the support, or I didn't feel safe. You know, for whatever reason, I just didn't feel safe. I'm so glad I am where I am now, and I'm with who I am now because there were moments as free and as open as a lot of punk spaces like to think they are. They're not. It's so interesting. This whole idea, like that, disco、mm. came from Black people, and they came from like the queer community. So, like a throwback from a time that Black people couldn't go out and dance around in white spaces. It was、yeah. like segregated, so they had to like make their own scene and create this thing of for their own selves, so they could go and experience joy. And how you know, for America, like where disco became a huge thing is. You should be dancing by the Bee Gees. Yeah, right. Number one disco song <laughs> on the chart. It's like three white boys. Yeah. History. It just sees what it wants to see.、Mm. I I wanted to say one of the things that、um, when I was listening to your music and also like hearing some of what you were saying is the music、mm. of La Belle came to mind. Oh my God! Yes. <laughs> so the other day, someone said that I reminded them of Nona Hendrix, and I about lost my shit. I was like, "Yes, yeah, love her." I mean, Afrofuturism, right? Like,、mm-hmm. to me, they were like, "Are not really were are you、mm-hmm. know?" Still, pretty essential Afrofuturist. Listen, they inspired my. My stage looks because I wanted to pay homage to them with like the silver, but still super feminine, but like big, you know. So what a force! So why do you make music the way you do? You know, this way of using your experience、mm. to amplify all these other issues on a grander scale. I mean, really, I create for my survival because you're thinking of the Kumbaya River Collective, like. If I am actually free, then it necessitates the destruction of all of these harmful systems that keep people who even think they're benefiting from it repressed and oppressed and enslaved. Like those systems have to be destroyed. So if I'm out here really free, then everyone else is going to benefit. You know, the long answer is. I want to create a better world. This is not good enough. This is not good enough. We can do better. And I'm out here just trying to live my life and save myself. Like I'm just writing from my experience. I'm creating because it it brings me joy. I'm here for liberation. And I'm here、mm. for enlightenment. And you think your music can do that because you've experienced it? I have. Listening to other people's music, even listening to this record, there are moments when I'm listening to it and I'm like, oh wow. This can get us closer to enlightenment, and I got to make that. You know, I think Audre Lorde and Bursts of Light, the collection of essays, she talks about going back and reading her work and her future self, and being like, "Wow, my past self really did something for my future self." That concept of like, you're making this art for you, you know, in the Namaste. Like,、mm. one definition can be just honoring the light in each other. When you bow to someone, it's It's a sign of respect. Like I respect your space. I don't gotta get all up in there and hug you and take anything from you. Like I see you. I got you. That really is to me what I'm trying to achieve. The the namaste. It's a hello, goodbye, 
I got you. I'll be over here if you need me, you know, <laughs> like, like you see some light, you see the light in yourself too. Do you see that you are divine actually? Wow. That's the goal is to be a little lighter. Under the Radar podcast featuring AJ Haynes from Serotones. This episode was produced by me, Celine Teoblocki, and executive produced by Mark Redfern. Additional editing was provided by Azine Samari with additional music from Lily Sloan. Our resident legal eagle is Deborah Davis Hahn. Under the Radar is a nationally distributed print magazine and website founded in 2001 by Mark and Wendy Redfin. You can find us at www.undertheradarmag.com. If you can, please support us on Patreon at patreon.com forward slash under underscore the underscore radar. You can also follow us on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. If you like this episode, please rate the podcast and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. It really helps other people find us. Follow us so you don't miss an episode. Till next time.